one of the things that I would really love um, is for all of our children to be aware that there is, there is no thought so dreadful, there is no feeling so awful that somebody else hasn't already had it first. And not only somebody else, but that your mum or your dad hasn't already been there first. You don't have to figure out how to manage it on your own because if you open your mouth and you talk about it, you're gonna find somebody else who's had that too and they can be a guide to help you through that moment. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Today on Wisdom for Wellbeing, I am joined by Tiffany Rochester. Tiff is a clinical psychologist working in private practice in Western Australia. She is inspired and committed to the application of contextual behavioral science, which is understanding behavior in the context in which it occurs in order to support people in reducing suffering in their lives and learning how to thrive. Tiff is passionate about nurturing children, adolescents, adults, and families to connect with meaning and purpose, no matter which curveballs life throws their way. Tiff comes from a systems perspective, which means it matters not just who the individual is that's sitting in front of her, but also how that person relates to the multiple systems they are a part of. Think family, friends, and colleagues. And systems perspective is actually something that Tiff talks a lot about in today's interview, and I think it'll be really helpful in you understanding the systems that you are a part of and how they impact your emotional well-being. Tiff has spent the last 15 years or so working systematically with families in a range of settings, and you'll see that this wisdom shines through in today's episode as well. Now, before we get started, I did just want to quickly acknowledge that the recording was not smooth sailing. It seemed to be cutting in and out, and we often did not have um, audio at certain points. However, this final version that you'll be listening to is fantastic. The editor has done a brilliant job of touching it up, and I actually don't think that you'll notice there's audio problems. However, since I allude to it a number of times, it might be worth acknowledging that and just highlighting how this experience was something that Tiff and I were able to connect over, perhaps getting to know each other at a deeper level, but also just getting to enter that space of being a very real human with emotions, you know, anxiety, frustration, and the like arising. Anyhow, without further ado, here's Tiffany. Tiffany, welcome to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. I am delighted that you have agreed to sit down with me here today. Thanks so much, Caitlin. It is really, I'm quite excited and I'm also really nervous. So <laughs> and thank you for being so honest with how you're feeling as well, because I think this is actually going to be part of our conversation today is sharing, you know, this very real experience that we all have and your concept of what it means to be on the same mountain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. I, I think um, being authentic in how we're experiencing the world um, is a really important part of how we interact in our relationships and how we shape um, the world of the people that we love and the people we come into connection with. 
That's really beautifully put. And I would love to follow up more around authenticity, which seems to be a real value of yours. But just to give the listeners a little, a little bit of background, would you mind just sharing who you are and you know what you do? Sure. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm working um, in private practice in Perth in Western Australia. Um, and my passion is working with families and working with systems. Um, I, when I was studying at uni, I didn't know that was going to be my passion. Um, I was particularly interested in working with teenagers because adolescence is such a, a tricky, tricky time. Um, and then my first job out as a consigh was working in a multisystemic therapy program, working with the families of repeat serious juvenile offenders. Um, and we got fantastic grounding and supervision in how to see systems and work with systems. And it has shaped everything that I've done in my career since then. I think it's a bit like that, that scene in the matrix where you, you know, you choose which color pill you take. And once you see systems and you start working with systems, you can't go back to treating people as individuals anymore. That's such a beautiful analogy. I love the matrix concept and I love how this has really informed, you know, your entire direction. So what are systems? So I guess uh, everything that we do exists within a system. So, um, you know, I have um, parents and children um, and I have siblings. So that's my family system that I move within. But I also have colleagues that I work with. I have a friendship network that I spend time with. I had coffee with my school mum system this morning. Um, there's a children's school that I interact with. Um, everywhere that we go, we're moving in and out of other systems. Um, and the systems are incredibly important because we are top of the food chain. And if you look at us as individuals in front of the mirror, we have no right to be top of the food chain. I couldn't kill um, an animal to feed myself. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that I could forage well enough to have a plant-based diet either. So leave me on my own and I'm gonna die. Um, and not just me, but you, and every yeah. single person who might be listening to us right now. Yeah. So how we work with our system is incredibly important for our survival and our well-being as people. Um, and all of those systems matter. One of the things that I will often talk with to the people who come to see me in the therapy room is that there is no limit to who we might invite into the therapy space with their consent as part of helping them find their way to wellness and, um, and a life worth living. That's really beautiful. I love that idea that everyone kind of that we come in contact with in these various systems in our lives matters enough that they're, they would be invited into the therapy room if your client felt that that was valuable and meaningful for them to create a life um, that sustain them, that works for them. And I'm also really interested in this idea that systems are, you know, a survival function. Like that's an incredible concept that I actually haven't heard put so elegantly before. <laughs> uh well, certainly, I mean, it, it sits very much within the contextual behavioural science uh, framework. And, um, it, like, if you think about um, a, a baby when they're first born, we know they're, they're really helpless. There's nothing they can do. I, I remember that sense of, of overwhelm when I had my first son and looking at him going, my goodness me, whether you live or die right now depends on me and me nurturing yeah. you and taking care of your needs. And if we look at the research... 
um, right from the get-go, the first thing that a baby learns is how to read mum, um, you know, how to mimic mum, how to poke out their tongue like mum does, um, but also how to read all of mum's micro expressions. Um, and that's incredibly important because the baby knows nothing about the world but has to trust that mum is going to keep them safe. Um, and so knowing how mum is feeling is that first part of being able to predict how the world operates and how to uh, know what to approach and what to avoid. That's incredible. So we come into this world, you know, as really vulnerable little creatures and our survival depends on mum. So there's a lot of pressure on mum, but also for the baby to really be able to connect in with what mum's feeling, with what mum's experiencing. If systems aren't working well, things are probably not going well for an individual. And I was wondering if maybe starting with this mother-baby, mother-child relationship would be an easy place to explore this from. Yeah, for sure. And, and I do want to broaden that out, of course, to, to dads as well, <laughs> who <laughs> very quickly become just as important. Yeah, um, yeah. um, look, and uh, look, I'd be delighted to talk about that because um, one of the things that I find is that a lot of our language out in, um, you know, in, in uh, magazines and TV shows and what have you is so focused on the individual um, and what the individual is doing and how they're uh, interacting with society um, and not enough attention I think on how the relationships shape that and within that I want to be really clear that um, a lot of the work that I find I'm doing when I'm working in the family system is working with really loving mums and dads who really, really care about the best interests of their children and are really committed to absolutely stepping up and doing what matters for their kids and some of the exposure that they get to the messages around how to do that are doing them a disservice. So if I could give an example, if that would be all right. Um, of course. One of the things that, are, that I will see a lot of is that we have a lot of messaging in society about being happy, about how important it is to be happy and kind of happiness at, at all costs. And, uh, you know, there, there's huge bookshelves on it in bookstores. It's, it's absolutely this big advertising platform, find your happiness. Um, and when we then look at what happens with mums and dads and kids is that when they see their kid being unhappy, as an act of love, they seek to make their child happy again. Like you can just see this, like, I love my kid. I don't want my kid to hurt. I want my kid to be happy. And so these parents do stuff to rescue their kids from painful emotions and to bring them back to happy, which sounds so beautiful, right? It's a really lovely thing to do, except that it also teaches some really unhelpful messages for long-term well-being, which is that like sadness matters. Sadness is a really important emotion to have. Anxiety shows up because it has a really strong evolutionary purpose for our survival. So we have these children who learn that they should avoid all of these emotions because mum and dad don't want me to feel them. Um, and so I've had children, multiple children, balled up in fetal position on my couch, refusing to have a feeling. And if there's one thing we can't do, we can't refuse to have feelings. They're going to come on in whether we want them or not. But all of that is happening within a loving family, within a family that's working to do the right things. We're not looking at people who are bad parents or who had bad parents. We're looking at people who are doing the best they can with the messages that our broader society, our broader system, right, 
yeah. is healing them. So it's occurring within that context of a system that isn't comfortable perhaps with some of these emotions like sadness or anxiety. And then the messaging is this predominant, you know, happiness theme that this is what we're seeking. This is the ultimate goal is to be happy all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And some of, I think the evolution of some of that's quite beautiful. Like if I look at, um, so my generation of parents was raised by baby boomers. And if we look at baby boomers, they had to go without a lot of things um, because their generation of parents were poorer um, or, you know, living through wartime or uh, you know, a different context. So the pe- people who raised my generation had to go without a lot and then moved into a time of wealth. So then they've got this loving thing where they go, so I'm going to give my children all the things I couldn't have. I'm going to let them have all these experiences that would have made me happy. So my generation of parents grew up with a lot of, a lot of needs being met um, and not having to learn how to go without, which means we've got now my generation of parents raising children where we might not know as a generation how to tolerate our own distress, that we might not know how to go without, how to make room for pain, how to make room for anxiety, and then we're raising children. That's really interesting. That's interesting that it's a whole generation that perhaps has not had the experience of going without, and then we're trying to teach this next generation, and obviously things have changed within one generation to the next. So I suppose there might be some context around why it's become more salient that this you know, tolerance or capacity to make space for uncomfortable emotions is is causing more trouble now? Would that be, yeah, appropriate to say? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, if, um, you know, if there's a parent who knows that her child would like a trampoline and a PlayStation and they're at a position where they can afford a trampoline and a PlayStation, why would they say no, you know, because mm. no is going to cause upset and, and, and upset is terrible. We want to get rid of that. We want the child to be happy. So let's buy them a trampoline and a PlayStation. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, those long-term consequences. And with that example, I guess in my head, I'm starting to think of the future where there could be consequences where someone can't have everything, you know, in regards to um, physical physical, um, I guess, items that they want. But also you mentioned that child curled up in a fetal position, you know, because they really didn't want those negative emotions. So could you talk through some of the long-term consequences of not being able to make space for these feelings and how this would, I guess, sit with someone in regards to their their search for well-being, their, their future opportunity? Absolutely. Look, I, and I love uh, that moment we talked about how the long-term impact of this stuff because I think it is so important when we're looking at how we shape raising families that we keep our eye on our long-term goals because sometimes we have to do some really, really hard stuff right there in that moment, but we're going to do it because we know that long-term it's it's going to get us and our children somewhere we want them to be. Short-term, the easier thing for me to do might be to tie my toddler's shoelaces, but long-term, when they're off at high school or going to university, I don't want to be doing that for them anymore. That wouldn't be normal. So I might have to make an extra 15 minutes in my day to teach my toddler how to tie a shoelace. Um, Good news, I don't have toddlers anymore and my kids can tie their shoes and it's totally awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Life's wins. (laughs) But also, yeah, so I guess what would we see is we see people who are driven by trying to find happy um, when happiness is not 
it's just not possible to be permanently happy. So what I might see if I've got a child who's had that early learning history um, is then they're going to uh, sit a test at school. Um, but if they're not sure how they're going to do in that test, they might decide, well, it would be better to stay home that day or better to take the easier classes because they don't want the anxiety of working towards an assignment. Um, better to not date because if you date, you might get your heart broken. So maybe we want to build a big wall around that heart. Yeah. <laughs> um, that that would be a big one that I would see is, is a big fear of of being hurt and being rejected. So we see people getting in there first. You know, I will keep the world at bay because if I reject you first, it doesn't hurt so much as you rejecting me. Um, that's really interesting because I suppose another system that comes up is the relational system, the romantic relational system. So how how do systems kind of function in that context where it's perhaps, you know, two individuals trying to find their way in regards to a romantic, um, I guess, connection? Yeah, look, I think that's a really... When I'm listening to that question, I'm thinking about all the different parts. Like I'm thinking about, you know, kind of... Uh, teenagers going out on first dates through to deciding whether or not you want to marry somebody or live with them, um, figuring out uh, how to stay together in the long term. Um, and I mean, we could just spend all day talking about all of those <laughs> elements. Um, but I guess so some of the stuff I'd look at is when two people are deciding to go into a serious relationship together, um, you bring the baggage of your context with you. Mm. Um, so in the first year, perhaps, of, of uh, living together, there's a whole heap of uh, um, unspoken assumptions about how things are going to work. Who's going to do the dishes? Um, who's going to win the debate over the toilet seat? Um, and is it okay to pee with the toilet, toilet door open or not? Um, there's going to be a whole heap of things to navigate, um, which are informed by what we've noticed in our own families of origin um, and the stuff that we learned about what it is to be a partner. Um, and then within that, I guess, a lot of the work that I do at the moment, I do a lot of work with separated families. And, um, and it is a, a very special interest of mine because um, then we've got these children who are being raised by two parents who love them very much, but who don't love each other anymore. And uh, helping a child navigate how to have a healthy relationship with two parents who don't necessarily connect anymore and then figuring out how to form their own romantic attachments is, um, is you know, it's, it's really complicated. It is a, a harder deal for those kids. Um, very doable. Mm -hmm. um, There's hope, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, of course. Um, and I, it, yeah, but there has to be kind of an intentionality around it. I think for everything, I think if, if for intact couples raising children, there has to be an intentionality about, what it is that you are teaching your children about what it is to be a partner, what it is to love someone, what it is to be loved by someone um, and how you navigate how to be in the world together as a unit. 
So I really like this word intentionality because it highlights that there's this need to sort of explore our own histories and how we show up in the world and how we have shown up in the world in regards to use the word family of origin. So, you know, when we were children within our family context, how would someone go about maybe starting to explore a little bit about what they've learned and you know, what their attachment is like. We use the word attachment. Maybe we should actually define that for the listeners too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, look, so, I mean, attachment is, um, is a very specific term. So uh, that, that looks at the way that um, the, the mother and child relate. And um, I guess uh, I, I'm noticing I, I want to move away from looking at attachment mm-hmm. <laughs> specifically, but, but looking at the way we relate to others in our experiences. Mm-hmm. Look, I think there are different pathways for many people. Um, I think, hmm, I don't think there's one right course for you know so like well everybody should go and see a psychologist for 10 sessions to explore their family of origin and their mum and dad issues um but i guess what i would think is that it's really important to kind of to talk particularly to talk to the people that you love and you want to be close with about what your expectations are and where they have come from um i remember Years ago, uh, well before I was married, going to a kitchen tea. So there was a, an older, older and wiser woman at this kitchen tea and she said, well, you've kind of got two choices and you've got to think about which is going to rile you up more. Is it going to be uh, that your husband didn't figure out that he was supposed to do the dishes and you're going to be angry because he hasn't done the dishes? Or is it that you're going to be angry because you had to tell him to do the dishes? Um, <laughs> And, and for me, that, I, you know, that might fall differently for every person listening to this. But for me, it was this really clear moment of going, I would rather tell my partner that is my expectation that he will do the dishes than to sit there and quietly resent and expect that he will mind read. Um, mm. and, and I guess I come across that so much where people, they... They love each other so much and uh, and there's these couples that are really trying to work together but they've just forgotten to tell each other some key information. Um, I I remember a long time ago a beautiful husband saying I'm so worried about my wife because she's working so hard all day looking after the baby and um, you know when I get home from work she's still busy and I make her a cup of tea and I can't even get her to stop for a cup of tea and I'm looking at this man and he loves her so 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 much but the question that he hasn't asked his wife is what do I need to do to help you to get you to a point where you can sit down and have a cup of tea. His intention was there. He just hadn't said it out loud and she needed some help. She just hadn't found a way to say what it was she needed. Yeah. So there's like these um, experiences where people are missing each other with the best of intentions. They just aren't aligning and perhaps the vocabulary or that opportunity to sit down and reflect how intentions might be gone a little bit awry, that space hasn't been created or hasn't been explored or they didn't know. Yeah. And I think again, it comes back to being comfortable with having emotions. Um, Because if, if I, you know, I, 
if I'm looking at, you know, kind of short-term gain with my partner, uh, the easiest thing might be to sweep things under the carpet and to not raise the fact that he has offended me here or slighted me there or I wasn't really okay with when he did this or that or what have you. And in the short term, that's great because we're not fighting and that's awesome. But in the long term, he's got no way of knowing that those are ways that are interrupting the closeness of our relationship. He's got no way of repairing that space with me. And the only way that we're going to get to that longer term space of being able to be, you know, really connected and close together is if I make room for my anxiety and my fear and I say, hey, I have to talk to you about this thing that's not working for us. Um, and, yeah, provide that opportunity that we could become closer through doing something really hard. Okay, so being able to sit with and notice our uncomfortable emotions and to communicate them to our partners is actually perhaps the thing that's going to cultivate the health in the relationship and that long-term connection and depth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, an example I use often with, with children in my room is I say, you know, so like maybe every time you've got friends come over, dad farts in front of your friends and maybe that's really really embarrassing and yeah they laugh too right um, and and maybe so I'll say like okay so this is an issue so maybe we talk to dad and we just say hey dad don't fart in front of your kids friends because this is really embarrassing and then maybe the kid says yeah but I'll hurt my dad's feelings like I don't or you know or he'll be angry at me or he'll be upset and then we map it out and we go well that's possible um but then maybe I want to do some work with your dad to, to help him be able to handle his feelings yeah. um, right but also if they don't talk to their dad about it he's going to keep farting in front of their friends he's going to keep being an issue um so that's really interesting. So it was this concept, you know, of someone being able to hold their own feelings and maybe they would, you know, see someone um, to talk through that. But this idea that if you're having an experience that's not working for you, practicing the skills to communicate to someone, that's kind of your responsibility. And then maybe someone else creating space for their own emotions, their own reactions, does that sort of become their responsibility or is there uh, exploring of how this dynamic works? <laughs> you're absolutely right. And that's um, where, again, I think once you see systems, you can't go back. So if I've got a 10-year-old whose dad is farting in front of their friends, it is not the responsibility of the 10-year-old to solve that problem by themselves. There's some way that sits on their shoulders. There's some way that sits on dad's shoulders. If I have a child who's coming in to talk with me about being bullied at school and I'm just working with that child, then the only thing that I can do with that child is teach them their own resiliency and flexibility to be able to cope in moments when they are being bullied by others um, and how to not be a victim themselves. But what I'm not doing is I'm not addressing the fact that there is some kid out there who is using bullying strategies and the history and the story around that kid. And I might be able to teach the kids sitting in front of me how to not be a target anymore, but I'm far more interested in helping that other kid learn how to not be a bully anymore. Now, the 10-year-old sitting in front of me can't do that, but I can go to the school and talk with them about what programs they're running in their school. I can coordinate in with the school psychologist to check out what are they already doing? Um, is there some more ways that, uh, that they can be supportive to that child who is a, a, a bullying child? Because, um, you know, chances are things are really not okay for that child either. Um, and then the other part I might want to do is I might want to do a whole heap of work with how mum and dad are responding to their child 
when they come home and talk about this experience of being bullied. And that part is really, really important because imagine that, like, you know, I see this kid and I see them for 15 minutes at once a fortnight and I do all this work with them, talking to them about how to make room for their feelings and how to talk and, you know, be more open about what's happening. And then they approach mum or dad but mum and dad are still focused on, I got to rescue and make you happy. Yeah, <laughs> right? Or, or they're focused on saying, you got to punch that other kid out, you know, or uh, that other kid is a terrible human being. <laughs> um, so we have to work with the broader system. Otherwise, the very work we might be doing with one person isn't going to generalize anywhere. We're just actually going to set up that one person for failure. That's really an interesting context, isn't it? So you're working with the child to help them develop their resiliency, their skills for coping, perhaps how to be less likely to be a target, but then also working in that system that is the school and they're connecting in with teachers, you know, with um, school psychologists. And from there also working in the system that is the family system. So working with mom and dad. So it's very multifaceted. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I imagine that change in one system does elicit some change in the other systems in some regards. So if what's happening at school is a bit different, you know, the individual child's experience is going to be different. The family dynamic will shift and and vice versa. Yeah. And sometimes that's really positive and sometimes it's got its dark side. You know, if, if uh, we've got somebody in a system where everybody is, is used to that person being passive or being a peacekeeper. And the piece of work we're doing with that part of the system is to teach them how to be more assertive and ask for their needs to be met. But it's worked for the rest of the system that this person has been the passive peacekeeper. Then some of the kickback that they're going to get from that system is not going to be welcoming and reinforcing of this new skill set. Um, so again, we have to work with that broader system. Um, around their long-term views for where they want those relationships to go. That's an interesting point. So maybe someone being passive and being a peacekeeper in a system, it might be in the context where the relationship isn't necessarily healthy for their well-being, and that's why they would be working on their assertiveness skills, for instance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, But it could have been working exceedingly well historically for the other person. Okay. So it highlights that if we're making change in our lives, it's going to be evaluating what is perhaps working for us in regards to our long-term well-being and our health. And then as we make change, we would expect that there should, there would be some change in our systems and it might not always be positive or met with positive, um, I guess, connection or experience. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you can see, and just talking that through, how scary that is. You know that that I might make some changes that are good for me, and that might bring some more hard stuff towards my life. Um, Which then I think, you know, one of the things that I kind of connect to a lot is I think we need to know what is it that you're willing to hurt for. What what is worth feeling pain? for because life isn't a bundle of joy there is a lot of hard stuff that happens um and i want to know like like if i've got a reason to show up for that thing if i've got a reason for that to hurt then i can lean into that moment Um, but i'm not going to hurt for the sake of nothing at all tell me about this what it is that someone's willing to hurt for how do they explore that what what does that mean Um, so I, look, I guess one of the things that I would look at is I would look at um, maybe the, the relationship that I have with my kids, and um, that is the 
the centre of everything for me is the relationship that I have uh, with my family members, um, my little children. Um, and I was uh, with my uh, 10-year-old um, a few months ago and he was having a hard time and we were walking to school and, um, and he was busy telling me about his hard time. But while he was talking to me about it, he was angry and he was shouting at me and he was uh, being prickly and difficult and I had this moment on my head of going this is hard like why can't he just be scared and anxious in a really fun way you know that's really kind of cool to hang out with while he's anxious and scared um, it's hard to be there with him when he's raging um, and so for me that's a moment that hurts me um, and I want to stay there and hurt with him because he's little and he's mine and I want to shape him through that. I want to help him grow through that. I want to lean into that moment of hurting with him. The happiness moment would be to dump him at school and get across to coffee with the school mums as quickly as possible. That would be chasing happiness right there. But it wouldn't be chasing the relationship that I want with my son and it wouldn't be chasing the lessons that I would like him to learn about the fact that hopefully I'm big enough and strong enough to sit there while he has those emotions and it wouldn't be helping him step his way through that experience that he had to have right there. That's really incredible. So it sounds like you having this clarity that being there with your son in the moment when he's experiencing these uncomfortable emotions is really important to you. That being the bigger, stronger person is for you something you have clarity on and you're willing to make space for his uncomfortable emotions, his big emotions, as well as your own that you experience in response to this system, to this connection, to this moment with your son. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think it's an important part of systems is that if somebody moves into fight or flight, they start giving out their, their ugly survival behaviours um, and that triggers other people in the system to also go into their flight or flight space and bring out their ugly behaviours. Um, so we can see a whole system go up an arousal curve really quickly with everybody being in fight or flight together. And in that system, it is the job of the people who are older and wiser, who have been around a little bit longer, to soothe that system back down and to be able to demonstrate I can actually hold these feelings. And whilst I have these feelings, I can stay in control of the words coming out of my mouth. I can choose what to do with my hands and my feet in the context of having this big feeling. And I can be here for this smaller, more vulnerable, less experienced person. And I can help teach them how to be here for that moment. That's really beautiful. It's the teaching of how to be here and finding a way to, I guess, soothe oneself in that moment, even though it might be an uncomfortable situation. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, this is so important because when I look at some of the work uh, that I do with young people in the room or conversations that I have out colloquially uh, with, with people socially, um, we have this idea that nobody else has these thoughts. Um, you know, if I'm talking to um, a, a child at the end of year six going to year seven, they might be feeling highly anxious about high school, but they have this idea that they're the only ones. <laughs> um, and so one of the things that I would really love um, is for all of our children to be aware that there is, there is no thought so dreadful. There is no feeling so awful that somebody else hasn't already had it first. And not only somebody else, but that your mum or your dad hasn't already been there first. You don't have to figure out how to manage it on your own 
because if you open your mouth and you talk about it, you're going to find somebody else has had that too and they can be a guide to help you through that moment. I am going to make a quote block out of that, Tiffany. No thought, you know, so so dreadful, no feeling so awful that somebody else hasn't had it first. That's incredible. And that might be a real reminder for the parents listening to be able to pass this on to their children. Would you have any advice for the parents who are listening, how they could be that bigger, wiser, you know, stronger um, being person in that system? I guess there's, there's several things that kind of come up for me in that question. And one of them is about parents not being afraid by their children having unpleasant thoughts and feelings to know that if a child is feeling that they're fat or if they think that they're unlovable or um, if they think that the world is a terrible place that they don't need to be frightened of the fact that those thoughts exist within their child or that their child is having those feelings Um, they happen for all of us we all have those stories and then if they cannot be afraid of them then they don't need to take them away from their child. And instead, the conversation doesn't have to be about, let me tell you how lovable you are or let me tell you how wonderful the world really, really is. It can just be a case of leaning into that moment with the child and saying, do you know what? Sometimes my mind tells me that stuff too. Sometimes I have those feelings show up too. And I think, like from my perspective, like that just makes parenting so much easier because now I don't have to rescue my child I just have to show up and sit there. Yeah, so showing up, sitting there, being there with one's child in the experience. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and that's enough. It is enough to just go, that thought sounds really horrible. Sometimes I have horrible thoughts too. I'm going to sit here with you while that thought's bouncing around in there. That's really beautiful. That sounds really powerful to be able to meet one's child where they're at. And as you said, it makes it easier. You're not having to change things. You're able to be there in that moment. Absolutely. And gosh, doesn't that take the pressure off? Like children, all people are great solution finders. You know, we are, we are really great at figuring out our own pathway through. So long as somebody can just sit there with us to help us soothe back, to find our way back to that space where we're able to think. When we're anxious, when we're scared, we're at the most primitive part of our brain and we can't rationalise and we can't see solutions and we also can't hear them from other people. So, um, you know, we might be having parents do incredible acrobatic acts to try and tell their children uh, amazing solutions to complex situations. And it's a waste because the child's not open to that at that time. But if you just sit with them, the child will figure out those acrobats all by themselves. Wow. That's really empowering for the child too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I guess with this, you know, Tiffany, in regards to one finding their purpose in life, you know, that, that thing that they're willing to hurt for, it sounds like perhaps in regards to your parenting, your purpose is to be there with your children to teach them that they can have these strong, um, uncomfortable emotional experiences and that you're going to meet them there. You're going to be there with them, but that ultimately they can get through them. 
Is there anything else that, you know, listeners might be able to reflect on in regards to how they find their own purpose? They might resonate with what you've described. Is there any reflective work they can do or anything that would support them in, in finding their own way? Um, again, it's, it's a question for which there's going to be so many different pathways for different people. Um, I think a really important thing to think about is like, what would you do if you weren't scared? You're going to be scared. That's going to happen. Anytime that you reach towards something that matters to you, you're going to be frightened. But if you weren't, what would that be? Um, or to look at what is it that brings you joy? What sparks for you? Um, I think tuning into what's happening within your body when you take particular actions and noticing, you know, when I do this, this feels life-giving for me. This feels like something that was really worth it for me. Um, as opposed to noticing uh, behaviours that lead you to feel like, oh, miserable. Mm. <laughs> um, or like you've wasted time. <laughs> um, Okay, so leaning into the things where you feel perhaps a joy, perhaps a spark, but also where something feels meaningful and it doesn't mean that it's always going to be comfortable because you mentioned that, yeah, you will feel fear, you will feel scared. And when you talked earlier, you know, you gave that example of a child, you know, maybe not taking a harder subject in school because they didn't want to do the assignments or to be sick so that they can avoid an exam, that even from a young age, there's going to be things that are meaningful, even though they're uncomfortable. And that doesn't necessarily mean we don't pursue them we need to be looking at long term what's going to bring us that joy or that spark is that an okay summary yeah absolutely I think um, and when we're looking specifically at children I, I, I love the um, work of Louise Hayes and Joseph Jerokey for working with young people because when we're looking at meaning and what's worth hurting for when you're a child you're learning. Everything is about discovery um, and trying out new things. You don't know what you value yet because you haven't done enough. You're under development. I mean, and that does go across the lifespan. Um, until I'd had babies, I didn't know how much I was going to enjoy going to the toilet all by myself. Um, <laughs> I knew it was going to be a present event. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but yeah, so so particularly for children and adolescents, there's a lot about trying out new things to see whether or not it sparks that sense of meaning, it sparks something that feels like um, like a drive or a purpose that they want to head towards. With kids, there's a lot of work, I think, about helping them step out when they're feeling scared to try something new and then tracking what happens next. What was worth being scared for? Um, you know, what what happened when they tried something that they weren't sure about? Did it lead to something that was great? Did it lead to something that was average? How do they want to tweak that experience next time? I'm teaching them how they can have impact on their world in order that they can do that, again, um, with intention, that they can do that on purpose. That's really really beautifully put this idea of supporting a child to explore what comes after an experience to talk through it to kind of be able to provide this guidance and this support and it also pairs back to what we we're talking about in regards to perhaps adults figuring out what is their purpose where do they want to be heading in their life because i suppose we can offer ourselves that opportunity to reflect back after an experience you know that might have been really scary but where did that take me where did that go for me Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess just sort of working towards 
tying this together, I'm wondering how this all links to something we alluded to in the beginning of the episode. You talked about it being really important for you to show up in an authentic manner. And we talked about this idea of climbing the same mountain. What does that mean? So I guess it ties back to a lot of stuff that we've talked about in this conversation, which is like if we go back right to the start, one of the things that I talked about is that I was nervous about us talking today. Um, and I was like, uh, when I get nervous, it goes to my guts, like it does for many people with anxiety or moments of anxiety, um, which meant that I've been to the toilet far more times than I normally would be before we had this call today. Um, the reason that I would share that with you is because like, I don't know what sense your listeners are making. They've, stu they've stuck with us this long. Um, and it's possible <laughs> yeah. my, my internal critic wants to tell me that they probably haven't stuck with us this long because I bore them to tears. Um, or that those who have stuck with us this long have done it because this train wreck of words that are coming out of my mouth and they're going, oh, my goodness me, why did Caitlin talk to Tiff? What crazy idea was that? But let's just see what kind of smash this ends up with, right? So I've got my critic going and telling me that, um, that I'm probably making a huge mess of this and the reason that it matters is that maybe there's also people listening to this going gee sounds like tiff's got a parenting sorted out sounds like she's great at being a psych uh gee i wish i could be like her she's got it all together and i don't like i get scared i get really uncertain um it, even when we're talking about this right now like my my hands are sweaty um and if i don't tell you that you don't know and if I'm not telling you that, then you think there's something wrong with you maybe when that happens for you. So being on the same mountains about going that all of us are in this one place together and the paths that you find tricky might not be the same paths that I find tricky, but we are both going to have times that are hard. We are both going to have times when we feel anxious and scared and we have ugly behaviours come out where we're trying to seek help. We're going to have moments, I have a lot of them, that I don't want to put up on a big screen as examples of parenting unless it's a don't do it like Tiff just did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think it's so important that we connect with our shared humanity um, and I think particularly this has been brought home in our country in the last few months when we've looked at you know part of being on this same mountain being on this same planet is we are all in this together um, and I think in the last few months in Australia we've seen across our system across the world whilst the world has watched what's played out in Australia We've watched the world system come together in really powerful ways to support each other. And we've watched some really ugly parts of the system come out as well. But we are in this, working this together. Um, each of us has our part to do. None of us have it easy. And I think the more that we can be open with each other and let our masks down about the fact that we all are struggling through this, then then the less alone we are and the more compassion and care we can have for each other and also for ourselves. That's really beautiful. And thank you so much for being so open and so honest about your experience, because it is really interesting that I can also attest to the fact that I'm sitting here on the other end and I get my own little sweat drips going down my face when I get nervous <laughs> in the conversations. So I think this idea of us all climbing you know, all climbing the same mountain is really connecting. I, I, I find it to be so. Um, and, and for me, it's a really beautiful image that we are all working this together. They're all 
part of this together. I suppose too, like we talked a lot about emotions and being able to have a full emotional experience that there is this cultural context around seeking happiness. But I wonder if this idea that we're all on the same mountain might allow us to be more receptive to the to our full range of emotional experiences. And, you know, you described earlier that maybe one of the messages we could be passing down to young people is that there is, you know, no thought that's so, I can't remember what the word you used was, but like distressing, you know, no um, experience that's so awful that someone else hasn't had it. I think that's all linking together. <laughs> it's almost like we had a theme. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I guess that, you know, we've got this theme, this idea that we're all on the same mountain together, that we're all operating within a, in a system that, you know, at this moment, you know, Australia is burning and Australia as a nation has pulled together in certain ways. The world has been watching, the world has pulled and connected together, you know, within this world system, within this nation system, there are different community systems, family systems, school systems you know, relationship systems. And yet where this individual person may be listening to this podcast right now, what steps could we take to cultivate a sense of purpose in our lives, to find some compassion for ourselves, and maybe work towards showing up in our systems, in our relationships, in a way that takes us towards well-being is there you know one step that maybe someone listening could take away and move towards after this episode wow that felt like a really big question i know it was probably <laughs> too long my inner critic is asking me to tone it down <laughs> oh, but you know what I, i'm thinking I, I it's why i'm so excited about this um series of podcasts that you're doing because i think there are so many people who have really useful um perspectives on these types of questions for um for your listeners i guess one of the things what would be one thing is when the critic shows up, and we all know what the critic is, we all have one, um, is when the critic shows up and tells us that we're doing a bad job or that we're making a mess or no one loves us or we're stupid, is to have that moment of going, and there is pretty much no one on this planet who has not already had that thought, that here is this moment of me being human like every other human. And then if this is the case, that I'm human here right now, what's something that I can do with my hands and my feet and my mouth that's going to take my life in one tiny step towards a direction that matters to me? Um, and what it's going to be for each person might be different. It might be making a cup of tea um, before folding the laundry. Um, but looking at just in that, just in that moment, what would take me towards something that matters right here? while I'm having this experience of being human like everybody else. That's absolutely beautiful. I really love that, checking in with what it is to be human and taking one tiny step towards something that will move us in our own purpose, in our own direction. And then 
undoubtedly that will be the ripple out that we need within going back to this being a long-winded, <laughs> long-winded level, you know, within our relationships, within our families, within our communities, within, you know, this nation, other nations, and within our world as a whole, that that little step might actually have a ripple effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a beautiful, uh, a beautiful couple of days with um, one of my kids. Um, he was in hospital to have his appendix out, which doesn't sound like the most beautiful thing. Um, but what was beautiful in that moment was looking at how many of the small repeated moments that we have gone over and over and over again in our time of being in a relationship together, pulled together in that moment of difficulty for him. Um, and the example that I would give is that uh, in our family, we have a practice of gratitude. It's a very uh, common thing in, in a lot of families. I don't think we're in any way unique. Um, and, and this has been a repeated practice every day for all of our lives. Um, and as many medical staff said to my son, oh, this sucks that you have to have your appendix out in school holidays. He looked at them and said, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful because I have the time right now to do this and mum has the time to be with me. And I didn't script that for him. Whoa, <laughs> that's amazing. You know? um, and that's that, that kind of ripple effect is that moment. And I think we all have the where we just go, oh, that's what I've been parenting towards. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, yeah. That, and I think that moment... That moment when you smile at somebody while they're serving you at the checkout and that's the moment that they remember that not everybody in this world is horrible. Um, or, you know, the moment that we stop to let someone cross the street or what have you, that, that ripple effect that you made reference to, absolutely. We don't, we don't know and we don't need to know how wide effect it's going to have. We just need to do it because it matters to us in that moment. That's gorgeous, Tiffany. I think that's a really beautiful note to finish off on that what we're doing matters for our well-being and for the individuals in our lives. And I guess in terms of people connecting in with you, you have a beautiful website and it relates very much to some of the conversation that we've talked about today. The website is thesamemountain.com. So people could check in with you there. And if they're in the Perth area, they could actually connect in with you face-to-face. -face. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, so I work at Three Waters Psychology Clinic um, in Leeming and um, uh, it's a gorgeous practice there. Um, yeah, so through the same mountain or through the clinic. Um, and one thing I'd like to say about the same mountain site is on there, there's a link to other resources. Um, there are so many brilliant uh, books and articles um, and, and research out there on how to uh, live a life uh, worth living in the experience of pain, um, how to show up for what matters. Um, and the conversation that we've had today um, is based on such a, a breadth and depth of research and very clever people, people far more clever than me, <laughs> who have pulled very this humble. <laughs> Well, that's beautiful. What I'll do is I'll put a link in the show notes, both to the same mountain um, and to Three Waters Psychology, and people can then go exploring and follow up on some of the resources you're talking to and connect in with you to extend this conversation further. That'd be fantastic. I would love that. Thank you so much for your time today, Tiffany. And again, thank you so much for your patience and going on the, you know, wandering path of trying to find our way back to audio with me. I appreciate it so much. <laughs>
Oh, Kayla, this has been a delightful way to spend the morning. It has been a, a, a real privilege to talk with you. I hope there's been um, some stuff that's been useful for your listeners. Um, I really appreciate this chance to have this conversation together. I've enjoyed it too. I hope that you found this interview with Tiffany as informative and connecting as I did. I think she does a really brilliant job of explaining, you know, different systems, how they relate and how these systems relate with our emotional experience as human beings, particularly in the context of a parent-child relationship and being that bigger, stronger, wiser individual for a smaller person. As mentioned, you can check out her website thesamemountain.com and I'll put a link to that as well as to her private psychology practice, Three Waters Psychology, and of course you'll be able to find that link in the show notes. So thank you all so much for coming along with us today. I know that the edited version of this interview doesn't necessarily describe the multiple attempts we had at reconnecting and our sound going out, but just know, again, we are very much on the same mountain. We are both holding our own emotional reactions to that, as well as on a practical level. Things don't always go perfectly. So cheers to getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. I'm looking forward to connecting with you next Wednesday for Wellbeing Wednesday. And I would really appreciate if you have enjoyed this episode or this show, if you could take a couple of minutes and wherever you're listening to the show, leave a review. It helps others find the show and maybe then they too will find something that serves them, helps them connect in with their own wisdom and create a life of well-being. All right, bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.